Axios Pro Rata, where we get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, the for-profit prison industry's most toxic asset and Kobe Bryant's other career. But first, the next global pandemic. As of this morning, China has confirmed over 2,700 cases of coronavirus, a respiratory illness that has caused at least 81 deaths. There are also now five confirmed cases in the U.S., plus instances in Canada, Japan, and South Korea, with widespread fears that there are many unreported cases because of some still unverified reports that the virus could be contagious before people become symptomatic. China has effectively quarantined tens of millions of people, shutting all travel in and out of the Wuhan region and the entire country seems to be wearing face masks. But the outbreak has caused global stock markets to fall as travel in and out of other areas of China continues unabated, including regular flights to the U.S. The big questions now are how wide coronavirus has spread, what we should be doing to stop it, and how we treat those affected. We'll dig into all of that in 15 seconds with Ron Klain, who served as the so-called Ebola czar under President Obama. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Ron Klain, who oversaw the federal government's response to the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Let's start here, I guess. Given your experience in watching Ebola spread several years ago, what stage would you say we are now at in the coronavirus outbreak, kind of in terms of how quickly it's moving and and if it seems to be slowing or accelerating? So I'd say we're still in the relatively early stages in terms of what we know. And I think that's the hardest thing for the public to understand. We have great experts in our government and our, obviously in our hospitals and whatnot. But each one of these viruses is a little different, a little new. And so they're going to hear experts say, we just don't know yet. We don't know how quickly it's spreading. We really don't know how lethal it is. We don't really know how many cases there are already in the United States. We don't really know about these reports that it could be spread even though someone's asymptomatic. So we're at the stage where there's still a lot of learning going on. There's still a lot of uncertainty. And so I guess you'd say we're, you know, in that sense at the early stages of this. That asymptomatic thing is obviously very problematic. This idea that somebody could appear healthy, but actually be contagious while appearing healthy, which is different than most other strains of flu for sure, but certainly different than SARS, Ebola, etc. If you were kind of in the role now, even though I know that role doesn't exist, but if you were in the role now that you were five, six years ago, what would be the first or second things you'd be doing immediately? Well, I do think, Dan, you'd be trying to trace that fact down and whether or not this early report that suggests that is true is, in fact, true or not. And it may also be that people might have the disease. It's not really clear. People are different extents of infectious at different stages in the disease's progress. And so Ebola, for example, someone's most infectious actually at the time of death, most contagious at the time of death. And so, you know, one question would be, how dangerous are these asymptomatic people in terms of disease spread? We just don't know. In terms of what I think the Trump administration should be doing now, I think it's a couple things. First of all, they need to put someone at the White House in charge President Obama put me in charge of the Ebola response in 2014, but after that was over, he created a permanent office of pandemic preparedness and response and had an official in the National Security Council who oversaw a team that was preparing for these events. Now, Trump 
continued that through the first year of his presidency. But in 2018, when John Bolton became head of the NSC, he disbanded that unit and fired the person who was in charge of it. And so there's no one at the White House who's in charge of overseeing the response. I think that's one thing they've got to get going on right away. Why does that matter? Because obviously CDC often is taking the the lead on this. Why does somebody need to be in the White House from your perspective coordinating as opposed to just let the CDC handle it? So CDC is the world's best infectious disease agency. They're the experts, but they're just one piece of this response. For example, we need to be screening people at airports who are arriving from China whether they're arriving directly from China or on some indirect route, that requires the Department of Homeland Security and the Customs and Border Patrol to identify those itineraries and set up the appropriate screening stations at our airports. We need to be working on our vaccine research. That's over at NIH. That's not a CDC function. And research on therapeutics and whatnot. We need to be standing up more hospitals to be ready to treat these patients in the U.S. That's a state and local government function that, again, CDC works with the state and local governments but doesn't have direct response And we may need to surge capacities in some of these cities that have a a number of cases in the U.S. And that's, again, something that's probably going to come more out of FEMA than maybe it comes out of CDC. And then finally, of course, we need to be worrying about things like our armed forces. Are they prepared for this? What if troops get infected? We need to be working on whether we're going to send people over to China and to other Asian countries that face this. And that's something that's going to come out of the State Department and the Defense Department. Ron, so if you think we're behind the eight ball right now, is it possible? In other words, if if President Trump named somebody tomorrow or next week, kind of what's the tipping point for being just too late to even have somebody in that role that's effective? Look, I don't think it's ever too late. I think sooner is better than later, as with all things in life, Dan. I think that the first job for that person or for whomever is going to coordinate this is to go to Congress and start to get them working on a package of investments we're going to need, right? We need to invest immediately in working on a vaccine that will be a public-private partnership that will have to work with the vaccine makers in our country and perhaps around the world. Somebody from Johnson Johnson said this morning, I believe on CNBC, that, that they were optimistic a vaccine could be found. Is there any reason for you to share or not share that optimism? Let's go back to your first question, kind of where are we in the progress of this thing? I think what you have to say about China is it's been more transparent and more candid than it has been during past outbreaks, though still there are problems with transparency and candor. There are also giant concentration camps there, which is the sort of place where disease can really spread very quickly. And, and that's the one place China has not been transparent. Exactly. And there are many other places they haven't been transparent. So I'll say one thing that they have done is they've released the sequence of the virus. We have a, a completely sequenced version of the virus. Now, it could mutate. There's some reports it is mutating. But I think when you have a sequenced version of the virus, I think it's understandable that the vaccine makers would be optimistic about taking that sequenced virus and building a vaccine to inoculate people against it. How long that will take? Weeks? Months? Then it has to be produced We have a special agency in the federal government called BARDA that works with private companies to help accelerate production of vaccines in these kinds of circumstances. We have 8,000 people a day coming from China. Can I ask you about some of those people? Because the State Department is evacuating its staff in Wuhan and also some private citizens on Tuesday. A flight is going to land at San Francisco International Airport. And, And if you look on Twitter, particularly San Francisco residents and those who are going to be flying in or out of that airport that day are a little bit freaked out about it. What are your thoughts about this flight? Because particularly if the asymptomatic report turns out to be true, it would strike me that there's a problem bringing a plane full of people into a commercial airport. But Dan, that misses the point. We are bringing plane fulls of people from China into every major commercial airport in this country every day. While you or I are on the phone, there's probably a plane from China landing at LA, landing at San Francisco, landing at New York, right? 
8,000 people a day, these 300 State Department employees and government officials and their families, is the least of the issue, right? And what's more, that's been happening every day, right? So this virus has been going on for probably at least a month, truth be told. And so that's 250,000 people from China who've arrived here, okay? And that's why we already have a handful of cases in the U.S. That's why we're going to see more cases in the U.S. And so identifying those people, tracking those people, and then, in the classic public health fashion, tracking the people who those people have contact with, that's a big project. And that's going to overwhelm state and local public health departments very, very quickly. And again, the federal government's going to have to help those state and local public health departments beef up their infectious disease detective forces. You work now at a venture capital firm. That's your day job. Venture capital firms invest all over the world, or at least have business partnerships all over the world. If you had a trip today scheduled to China, not just to Wuhan, but to say to Beijing or Shanghai, would you go? So I think people should exercise caution. I think I probably would not go to Wuhan. First of all, a hard place to get into right now. And leaving aside even the coronavirus itself, there's a lot of displacement and uncertainty there. The medical facilities there are jam-packed. And so even if you came down with some other kind of ailment, getting treatment would be very hard. So I definitely wouldn't go to there, one of the hardest hit cities. I think I'd travel to other parts of China. You know, look, I think if you have some real urgent need to go, you have some compelling business, you should go and just exercise caution. Still, the percentage of people in the country who have the disease is very, very low. And the percentage of people with the disease who get gravely ill is very, very low. So there's probably a lot of other risks in travel that are even more pronounced than the risk of getting the coronavirus. Look, all things being equal, if you could postpone your trip, you probably should. But I don't think there's really any reason to uh, postpone essential travel or really important travel to cities outside of the Wuhan area or cities that haven't really shown uh, infection levels. Ron Klain, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is for-profit prison services, which have come under increased political scrutiny, particularly from Elizabeth Warren, for charging too much and providing too little. Now comes news that something called TKC Holdings, a private equity-backed company that mostly provides food and commissary services to prisons and other correctional facilities, is seeking to sell off its prison phone calling business called Inmate Calling Solutions. Why it matters is that this deal would actually hurt TKC's credit rating, reflecting just how toxic prison phone service companies have become, including instances in which prisoners have been charged $25 for a 15-minute call, and how they regularly get charged big fees to open and close accounts, money they might not have, just so that their kids can hear their voice. In short, TKC thinks a bad deal is its best and maybe only deal. And finally, a quick note on the Kobe Bryant tragedy. Most people obviously know him as a retired basketball star and all-around celebrity, but Bryant also sought to become as successful in business as he was on the court. In 2003, while still playing for the Lakers, he formed an investment firm with serial tech entrepreneur Jeff Stiebel and invested in dozens of companies, including LegalZoom and video game giant Scopely. He also became a fixture on the LA startup scene with dozens of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists yesterday tweeting photos and sharing memories of recent meetings. It was a second act cut short way too soon. 
and we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national bubble wrap day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.